This is Patrick Daly and welcome to Interlinks. Interlinks is a program about connections, international business, supply chains and globalization and the effects these have had on our life, our work and our travel over recent times. Today in the show, we will be talking to Martin Christopher, Professor Emeritus at Cranfield University in the UK, where he's been instrumental in building the Centre for Logistics and Supply Chain Management. And after leading the centre for over 20 years, Martin now dedicates himself to a wider portfolio of activities, including the creation and dissemination of knowledge in the field through published works, executive development, speaking and thought leadership. And among his books are included the titles Marketing Logistics and Logistics and Supply Chain Management, as well as several others on dealing with procurement strategy, uh, business relationships, operations, and humanitarian logistics. So welcome, Martin. Great to have you here with us today. Thank you, Patrick. Good to, good to be with you. So uh, logistics and supply chain are areas of knowledge that were, I think, Martin, until relatively recently, the preserve of kind of practitioners and academics in the field. But now it seems to be on the lips of uh, politicians, TV presenters, economists, wherever you turn on the radio, the TV, online, um, you know, people more and more are realizing that their current and future well-being are very much tied up with the correct functioning of these mysterious uh, supply chains. So maybe before we delve into what's going on in supply chains now and what might happen in the future, might perhaps just take a quick look back at how we got here and, and your role and Cranfield's role in, in all of that. So uh, how, when and how did the world become so dependent on international supply chains? And what was your, your role and that of Cranfield University in, in the story of the theory and practice in logistics and supply chain over the last three decades or so? Well, I guess uh, the first question about uh, when did we really start um, take supply chain seriously? I mean, we've always had supply chains, of course. Um, but I think, as you, as you rightly point out, um, it's only in the recent past that because of uh, a whole number of events of which we're, we're very familiar with, uh, we've come to recognize the dependencies that um, uh, underpin uh, economies you know, across the globe. And I think one of the sort of main uh, drivers for this, and we could maybe sort of trace it back to probably I don't know, around about the 70s, 80s of the, of the last century, 1970s, 1980s, with the major move to, um, first of all, outsourcing, uh, but then also to offshoring. Um, and if you remember, there was a great sort of um, surge in the, in the search for what they then call low-cost country sourcing. Um, I don't think there was a lot of concern with looking at things like supply chain risk at the time. It was really about how do we squeeze cost out of the business? You know, we take companies like, say, here in the UK, uh, Marks and Spencer, you know, at the time, you know, then one of uh, Britain's uh, leading clothing retailers, uh, less so today. Um, but they made a major shift around about that period from being almost entirely uh, UK and, and Republic of Ireland uh, based in terms of their sourcing. Almost every one of their clothing products uh, came from the British Isles. Um, and they, they, they moved in a, in a space of less than a decade uh, to being, you know, massively um, sourced uh, from off, offshore. And that, that was just one little example. There were many, many, many others like it. And I think since then, um, that, that trend continued, obviously. Um, but also, too, I think we uh, started to um, recognize that as we, the more we adopted things like just in time and so forth, um, what we were actually doing was we were extending uh, lead times in many cases. And it was actually making our supply chains less, um, less responsive to, as, the, as demand became more volatile and, and you know, eco economies became more 
more turbulent, um, we started to realize that, well, maybe actually um, these supply chains need to be sort of um, better managed and particularly that we need to start to get a sort of a better grip of um, what we now call uh, supply chain visibility. So I think um, we, we sort of stumble into a lot of these, these things without paying proper regard um, for, for what the real implications are. And now, of course, we're all starting to recognize this. And I think this is the reason why it's, it's, it's sort of um, uh, really risen to the top of the agenda now uh, in boardrooms, you know, in, in, in every industry. And as you say, politicians particularly are much more aware of this than, than ever they were. You asked me how did Cranfield come to be involved in this? Well, um, it's actually almost an anniversary. I've just passed the, the 50th anniversary since I joined Cranfield uh, as a fairly junior uh, lecturer in, in, in logistics and, and supply chain management. And in those days, we didn't even call it supply chain management. It was called physical distribution management. And it was very much about you know, what today we'd call trucks and sheds. It was transportation, it was warehousing, all very important issues. Um, but um, we started to recognize, as, as did many others, of course, that actually um, the way we serve the customer uh, can be a very powerful source of, of, of competitive advantage. And I think that's where we really started to focus our efforts at, at Cranfield. And so I became professor of marketing and logistics, which is quite an interesting sort of combination. It was really about saying, how can we sort of harness logistics um, to create advantage and to improve our, our, our sort of marketing um, effectiveness through the way we serve the customer. Um, and we, we started running programs. Uh, we launched an MSc in, in what is now logistics and supply chain management. Uh, many executive programs, of course, over those years. And indeed, our research activity, which underpinned all of this. Um, uh, I'm pretty proud to, to say we were uh, doing a, some fairly significant work around about the year 2000 in supply chain risk. And this was at a time when nobody was talking about risk and resilience. Um, this was actually brought on by uh, one of the sort of, um, you, may, you may not remember this, Patrick, maybe you're too young, but in the year 2000, we had this Y2K scare. Yes, I remember. Right? I yeah. remember yeah. Um, you know, yeah. when, as, as we move from one millennium to the next. Yeah. The planes were going to fall out of the That's sky. That's right. All the computers yeah. were going to come to an end, uh, to a halt. <laughs> so there was actually quite a lot of concern about um, how, how vulnerable our systems were. And I think this, this started this sort of whole focus. And that's when we got involved, certainly, uh, in, in, in working in that area. And I, I, it's interesting you mentioned uh, marketing and logistics, because I, I came to the world of logistics and supply chain from the engineering side. So I started my career as an engineer in, in manufacturing, and that's how I encountered it. But for me, it was all about kind of materials and imports and exports and warehouses and trucks. And you said, and when I first came across your work, it was it was through your book, Marketing Logistics. And I was very kind of surprised to see those two words standing together. So what is the, the link between marketing and logistics? And what is the key message that you want to convey with this idea of marketing logistics? Yeah, well, I think um, one of the, the, the major sort of drivers behind this, this, um, this, this focus on these twin areas of marketing logistics was the fact that increasingly uh, in many markets, we were moving towards a sort of commodity type status where the classic marketing tools of advertising and promotion and so forth we're having less and less effect. You know, when brand loyalty starts to sort of uh, slide and people are uh, motivated much more by availability, you know, if, if we just think about our, our regular visits to a supermarket, you know, we, we may have a preferred brand of instant coffee or whatever it may be, 
Um, but if it's not there, um, we're probably not going to go searching halfway around town to find it. We'll, we'll take an alternative, maybe one we've used before, which we quite like. And what it's really telling me uh, increasingly, and it's not just in grocery retailing, it's everywhere, um, is that availability uh, increasingly can, can overcome brand loyalty. And, um, and certainly, I think, uh, if we're looking at B2B marketing, um, like a, if you're not with the one you love, love the one you're with kind of thing. Yeah, Yeah, exactly. Yeah. And I, I think um, it's th that re realization that says, well, actually, in that case, uh, what we need to be focusing on is the systems that enable us uh, to ensure that product is available at the time and place that the customer wants it. I, uh, I like to sort of um, uh, use the, um, the uh, example, I think, that... Um, uh, Procter and Gamble originally introduced, and this this was this notion they, they talked about the two moments of truth. Um, the one of those moments of truth is the the customer experience. You know, when when they when they like a brand, when they try the brand, do they actually like it? Um, you know, do they want more of it? Do they want to come back for it. But you don't get to that moment of truth if you don't meet the first moment of truth, which is when the customer's looking at the shelf. Is your product actually there? You know, and it's it's that twin focus that PNG have, have, have really um, emphasized, I think, probably for the last 20, 25 years now. And it's led to, I think, in that business and many others like it, um, a real sort of recognition that um, marketing and logistics have got to be managed uh, side by side. Uh, I think another another idea I think that people identify with with you is the one that um, supply chains compete, not not companies. So what do you mean by by that, and what are the implications of that idea, and how does it actually manifest itself in practical reality? Yeah, well, I think um, there was a time, as 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 you know, Patrick, when many companies um, did pretty much everything themselves in house. Um, you know, if we think about a company like Unilever. Uh, when I when I first started um, as an academic, it was a long, long time ago. But Unilever, um, you know, they had their own advertising agency. They had their own transportation company. They had a shipping line, the Norfolk line. They had a market research company. Uh, they had uh, fish uh, farms. You name it, they 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 had it. If it was part of the supply chain. You know, they 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 they'd want to own it. Um, well, that's all changed, as we know. Um, uh, fewer and fewer companies now, um, you know, want to sort of cover the entire end-to-end -end, uh, process. Instead, they want to focus on what they might think of as their, their core competencies. And so as a result of that, as a result of that outsourcing, the dependencies um, in every business have grown significantly. And so when I say that supply chains compete, what I'm really saying is it all comes down to how well do we manage those interfaces, those relationships um, with those upstream and downstream uh, partners and that's what makes a difference to me um you can see i mean i if we take an example from the from the car industry where again they've been through the same um process of, of focusing just on, on on what they're good at and so a company like ford you know who previously in the days of henry ford henry ford the first he owned steel mills he owned rubber plantations anything he needed pretty much to make that car um well, today, of course, it's nothing like that now. They don't own steel mills. They've outsourced their component manufacturing uh, and so on. And so they're very much dependent now upon how closely they can work. And often, too, they're very dependent for innovation, as so many companies are, on their supply base. And so I think it's really down to um, how good we are at um, managing these relationships as real partnerships. 
because as, 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 you, as you'll know, so many companies in the past uh, tended to have almost adversarial relationships with their suppliers. They'd play one off against the other. There'd be arm's length relationships. You wouldn't want to get too close to them. You wouldn't want to share information. Um, well, that's all changed. And that's, that's really what I mean when I say supply chains compete. It's, 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 it's the quality of the relationship that makes a difference. 93.9, Dublin South FM. This idea then of supply chains competing implies, as you said, collaboration between entities that are actually independent for mutual uh, benefit. But it, I, I get the impression then that there must also be a kind of an unequal distribution of power and value appropriation in, in supply chains. And that's just unavoidable, I guess. So how, how can or should supply chain governments work to the benefit of all the participants? Or is it just more a case of rule by the strongest and then do the best with whatever leverage you have for the smaller players? Or how, how does that work out? Well, I think this, this, the smart companies, yeah, they, they recognize that, um, you know, we're in the driving seat and we want to sort of, uh, if you like, be the sort of channel captain. But they also need to recognize that they've got to leave something on the table um, for the people they want to work alongside of. And so when we talk about win-win, a lot of people think that means 50-50. You know, we're going to split the... It doesn't mean that at all. You know, if you're, if you're Procter & Gamble working with Walmart, you know, Walmart um, has, has, has got the power. There's no question of that. But Walmart are also smart enough to recognise uh, that they need to have um, the best sort of relationship with Procter & Gamble uh, in order to take costs out of the supply chain. They're, the only reason that Walmart can uh, have their everyday low price value proposition is because they're working with suppliers um, who are prepared to sort of uh, connect their systems to theirs in some sort of seamless uh, way to enable those sort of um, significant costs that are embedded in the supply chain to be kept to a minimum. So, yeah, I, I mean, obviously, there's always going to be somebody in control. Um, but the smart companies say, yeah, um, we're in control, but we also want to make sure uh, that we've got profitable suppliers um, and that we leave something on the table. Because if we don't, um, that relationship's not going to last too long. There's a kind of uh, enlightened self-interest. Yeah. And I think maybe maybe Toyota would be a good example of that, particularly in innovation. Isn't that right? Yeah, I think that's true. I think in many ways, the Japanese companies have shown, have shown the way here um, in the way in which they certainly initially uh, used to establish very tight uh, and close working relationships um, they talked about a kairetsu, a, a, a circle um, of, um, of suppliers with whom they invested too. They, 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 they would, I mean, I remember when Nissan opened their first factory in the UK. Um, Nissan um, dealt with only a relatively few number of suppliers, uh, which was quite revolutionary in the, in the context of the British car industry at that time. But with those suppliers who they did deal with, um, they actually put a supplier development team, a team of Nissan engineers and IT specialists and particularly quality um, specialists to put them in, embed them into those suppliers to really bring those suppliers up to speed. They're prepared to invest in improving those suppliers processes. And they weren't doing that as a charitable exercise. Obviously, they were doing that to improve their own operation. And of course, it paid off uh, uh, amazingly. Yeah, since it's very interesting. I'm uh, I'm fascinated currently, right at, at the moment, about what's going on. So we have this current environment where we've been experiencing kind of series of, of shocks that appear, they appear to people to be unexpected. Maybe they're not so unexpected, but they, they feel unexpected, uh, such as the war, such as pandemic, trade wars, Brexit, and so on. Um, but they're all set within 
bigger trends that are clearly visible, uh, I think, for anybody who's who's paying attention, uh, such as demographics, mm. social media and the effects that's having climate change, energy transition, sovereign debt. That's all that's all there. And we can see kind of the big arc of that. So as, as these events and trends continue to kind of interact and play into business strategies, where do you see that supply chains are at right now, international supply chains I'm talking about now? And how do you see them changing and evolving in the in the coming years? Well, certainly every um, supply chain manager I've talked to in the recent, I don't know, in the last 12 months or so, um, are all saying the same sort of thing, basically, that, yeah, globalization isn't over, obviously, um, and it's going to continue. But I think we're all taking a very close look now at these arrangements, and we're starting to think about... Um, the, some of the ideas that we, we, we discarded in the past, I mean, things like dual sourcing, for instance. Um, and, uh, you know, I, I, I see a lot of people talking, for instance, about China plus one. Uh, basically, what that means is that, yeah, we want to continue to source because we've been doing that and we've been building you know, significant uh, investment in, uh, in China for, uh, for a long time. But we also recognize, you know, the potential um, risk that that might entail as we move forward. And so we want to have something uh, alongside that. So if you look at, say, for Apple, for instance, um, uh, their latest um, iPhone, you know, a significant proportion of that now is being sourced and, and assembled in, in India. Um, not, and they've always been a massive player in, in, in China, as, 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 as you know. But I think they're sort of recognizing, as, as many companies have now, that um, in this world of uncertainty, um, we've got to have uh, a whole number of contingencies. And it may not be the most efficient way um, to run the business, um, but it's the one that's going to provide the greatest resilience. And I think today, um, the key word, as we know, is, is indeed resilience. And so um, if that means that things are going to cost more, then that's the price of survival in, in this uncertain world. I know, uh, I know demographics is a, a topic of interest to you, and I've heard you kind of talk about how that uh, will affect, um, you know, people's spending choices and where and when they spend and, and so on. Um, and it was a very interesting article actually this morning in, uh, in The Guardian talking about the relative demographic trends in India and China. So India very soon is about to overtake China as the most populous country in the world. But not only that, its population is continuing to grow as China's as they think maybe it's peaked and it's going to begin to decline. Yeah. So that that is going to um that gap is going to open up. So I guess that will have an interesting impact on on supply chains and consumption in the coming years, won't it? Indeed. And I think um again many organizations have come to to, to recognize this that um uh, we, we our supply chain arrangements and indeed our whole sort of product strategy in the past has been very sort of Western centric. Um, and now, of course, we've, we've, we've come to recognize that, as you say, the whole center of gravity is, has been moving and those trends have been there for some time. And so I think um, the idea that we need to have much more flexibility in how we uh, build our um, supply chain arrangements, our sourcing arrangements, uh, where we manufacture and so forth. And it's interesting to see you know, a company like General Electric, for instance, um, saying we're a global business, but what that means increasingly for us um, is that we're going to be much more local for local. Um, so there won't just be one General Electric, you know, and one General Electric supply chain strategy. There's going to be many of them, and they're going to be based wherever we can 
uh, much closer to our, our markets. If those markets are in, you know, India, wherever, then that's where we'll be. And um, I think it's leading to a very interesting sort of situation now, whereas in the past, we always used to talk about centralization of manufacturing, um, focusing factories. We talked about economies of scale. Now there's a much greater emphasis on, on what we might think of as distributed manufacturing. Uh, the idea of moving supply closer to demand, <clears throat> smaller scale, but you're making use of new technology, which means that um, we're not losing any of the economies in doing this. And indeed what we're gaining is what some call the economies of scope, which means we can do more things with the same resources. Uh, so we can customize, uh, we can tailor, we can localize whatever it may whatever it may require. So it's a, it's a different sort of um, uh, landscape, I think, that we're starting to see now in, in every sector. So it's a kind of a regionalization yeah. of supply chains. Yeah, lots of lots of redundance, maybe some duplication, but more yeah. resilience. Indeed, yeah. Um, so it's, it's the same sort of pattern that we were saying before about you know the sourcing arrangements. Hmm. Um, it's, it's about flexibility, and I think it is. If you think about it, it's, it's so obviously the sensible thing to do if we can. Uh, when we don't know what tomorrow is going to bring. Sure. Closer to home then, uh, given that you're in the UK and I'm in the Republic of Ireland, uh, and it's here on this island where the only land border between the UK and, uh, and the EU now, now resides. So how, how has Brexit uh, affected UK supply chains? And independently of the, the politics around it all, what do you see as the challenges and opportunities that Brexit has posed, say, both for the United Kingdom on the one hand and then for a, uh, your closest EU neighbour, Ireland, on the other? Well, the challenges have been massive. And I, I just wish that those who made those decisions at the time, you know, were, were more fully appraised of, of the supply chain implications. Um, uh, sadly, um, and, you know, I mean, maybe we're all to blame for not trying to sort of make shout this out a bit louder as, as to what the, the, the likely implications were. Um, and it's really come home to roost now, I think. Um, and so the, 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 the problem of trying to resolve this, as, as we know, is, 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 is taxing, uh, uh, well, I was going to say greater minds than ours. Maybe they're not greater minds than <laughs> ours. Um, but um, I, I'm hoping that we're actually going to move away from this sort of um, um, hard Brexit sort of idea that dominated uh, certainly here in the UK. Um, in, in political circles, and we move to something a bit more pragmatic, um, which recognizes that, you know, Europe for many years has been and still is our, our biggest trading partner. Um, and I can't think of any company that would want to voluntarily walk away from its biggest customer. Um, so, you know, I, I think we're going to find solutions. Uh, they may not be to everybody's um, satisfaction, um, but it's, it's something which is vital, I think, uh, on, on both sides, we, we've got to we've got to work this one out. Yeah, and so now uh, this this juncture, if you like, in, in in your career. So, what are your areas of of interest now, and what work are you doing in the fields of executive development, writing, thought leadership, and so on? Well, I've I've sort of stepped back from um, my you know full time teaching role now, um, and what I'm focusing on is um, trying to just develop. Um, ideas around um, agility and particularly as it applies to resilience, because as we've just been discussing, uh, this has become, I think, the, um, the, the key issue today. And, and I think will remain so for, for, for a long time to come. Um, and I'm working and talking to people like yourself and others, uh, trying to sort of scope out possible 
um, strategies for, for organizations to say, how, how do we actually manage um, a supply chain in, in a world where we can no longer assume that tomorrow will be the same as today? Um, and I think this, this means that we're, we're all going to be looking for um, a rather different sort of um, supply chain landscape, which for me certainly is going to be based much more upon um, working more closely with others. As I say, I think we're forced to do this, whether we want to or not. This is why I've been focused so much on relationship management. Um, and as we were highlighting before, this idea of supply chains competing, not individual businesses. Um, so this is where I'm going to be spending uh, most of my time is, is thinking and, and, and writing. I've just, I've just brought out, it's, well, it's actually not hit the bookshops yet, but it's, it's with the printers, uh, the sixth edition of my uh, book, Logistics and Supply Chain Management, um, which is updated and sort of tries to reflect on these, these sort of recent um, impacts that we've, that we've been talking about. Um, and I'm sure as time goes on, <laughs> we'll probably see a need again for a uh, yet, yet a further edition. Whether, whether I'll produce that or somebody else, I'm not sure. <laughs> okay, well, I look forward to the new edition, and uh, I'll pick it up as soon as it, as soon as it comes out. So, uh, as we as we kind of come into the last few minutes, uh, Mark, we might just change tack a little away from uh, work and business. I might just ask you, like outside of of work, what kind of things do you like to do in the way of kind of hobbies or, or other interests? Well, I've got one or two. Um, um, in commitments where I'm involved with a, a couple of different charities. One is um, uh, attached to the local art gallery, actually, um, where I, I'm a, I've always been a big enthusiast of, of, of art. And um, uh, so um, I'm helping with um, trying to develop their sort of, um, um, let's call it their outreach, if you like, in, in terms of, um, um, we've, we're very fortunate here where I live in Bedford in having a, a really splendid, um, art gallery in, in what is a relatively small town. Um, so that takes up some of my time. But the, the other one, which is, again, quite different, um, it's, it's a, a, a UK organisation called CPRE, which is actually a countryside charity, which is about trying to protect uh, uh, Britain's diminishing countryside from some of the depredations of uh, development and so forth. Um, it's not trying to stop, um, uh, you know, as moving forward in the 21st century. But what it's trying to say is, can we do this in a way which still leaves something for others who are gonna follow us? Um, so that's that's another uh, significant um, uh, involvement that I have. Yeah, that's, that's, that's very worthwhile. Are you, are you reading or listening anything lately that you find inspiring and you'd recommend to listeners? Well, I've just been uh, re reading a, a few things. Again, it, they're, they're countryside related, but it's about what we call regenerative, regenerative if we can say it, uh, farming. Um, uh, the, the idea being that um, conventional farming practices, and even most, most farmers would acknowledge this, uh, where we've been very dependent upon intensive farming and particularly using uh, synthetic fertilizers and so on, means that we've only got maybe some say, you know, maybe another 14 harvests left. Um, because the, the quality of soil, for instance, has been so, so degraded. And so there's quite a big movement now in, in what we call regenerative uh, farming, which is about, it's going back in a way in some respects, um, but it's actually allowing um, uh, nature to sort of play a rather greater role in, in, um, in how things are grown. Um, and trying to create this balance between um, having a countryside that sort of, you know, still looks a little bit like the countryside, but is also capable of feeding 
you know, a growing population. And uh, so that's a really interesting sort of area that uh, I, I've, I've been looking at uh, recently in a, a book by um, uh, Jake Fiennes, which he, he um, is a, um, an authority in this area, which is, is, is something which I'm just currently reading. So uh, on, okay. uh, I call regenerative farming. Excellent. Sounds uh, really interesting. Regenerative farming by Jake Fiennes. Yeah, yeah. I'll, I'll, I'll look it up. Well, Martin, as as always, uh, we always get beaten by the clock on this uh, on this on this show, and it's happened again today. So many many thanks for being here with us today. It's been an absolute pleasure to talk to you. Well, thank you too, Patrick. I enjoyed it very much. Thank you. Likewise, and thanks also to our listeners for tuning in again today. And be aware that if you enjoyed this episode, you can find the full series of over 100 episodes of Interlinks on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, Acast, and other major podcast platforms. So until next time, keep well and stay safe.